This week on the Sport Blokes, Stewie manages to squeeze NBA into the world of competitive speed skating. Damn straight. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, this week we chat about a real stand-up guy, Stephen Bradbury. Sure, he was a bit lucky, but there's so much more to the story of Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medalist. Oh, there really is. Let's go. So, Stewie, in looking at our kind of numbers and stuff, I've actually realised that we've had at least five listens in 30 different countries. Now, they can't all be VPNs. There will be a few VPNs there. But some people that listen to our show might not know about this guy as much as we do. And look, I've got to be honest also, I didn't know as much about this guy as I thought I did. This is a fascinating story. I knew 85% as much as I thought. (laughs) There you go. All right. So this week is a fascinating story about an Aussie sporting legend some 20-odd years after his greatest achievement at Salt Lake City in 2002. To our younger listeners, he's the bloke from Survivor who was at the Olympics, or maybe even the guy pretending to read the sports news on those mosh ads. I don't know if you've seen yeah. those. <laughs> but those of us who are a little bit older remember him as the man responsible for one of the greatest Australian sporting images of all time. And i got to say, re-watching the footage of the final race yesterday, it still sent shivers down my spine. Oh, it's one of the most unbelievable stories. I mean, I don't know how you even really put it into words. It's just like... Well, we'll do our best over the next half hour or so. (laughs) If we can stay on our feet. (laughs) So this week we enter the world of competitive speed skating. Woo! Now, you and I will admit that the Winter Olympics and Winter Olympic sports certainly aren't our favourite. And when we did weekly newsy kind of shows, we didn't cover them a hell of a lot. It's because we didn't know how to. So obviously, we're no experts at this. But something that I learned in researching for this episode is that speed skating is actually the fastest self-propelled sport in the world. That is a sport where there is no engine or gravity assisting, just the athletes providing self-propulsion. So they can actually get up to top speeds of about 55 kilometers an hour. Now, to put it in perspective, thoroughbreds go about 60 kilometers an hour. So it is is fast. Okay. And not only this, but Australia actually has a longer history with speed skating than you might think. Jim Lynch, for example, won the 1978 World Short Track title and was the 500-metre world champion winner in 1979. Good old Jim Lynch. So we do have a history with it more than we maybe thought. So our story today is a little bit more recent than that, of course. But first, we decided to begin with a definition, didn't we, Shui? Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about something slightly different, not so much directly relating to Stephen Bradbury, but something that actually comes from one of our favourite TV shows, The Simpsons, at around about the time that Bradbury's international career began. Mm. And it is episode five of season three, an episode called Homer Defined, where Homer actually saves the nuclear power plant from meltdown, choosing the emergency override button by doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Yes, yep. And there's a scene in it, obviously everyone has gone, oh my God, Homer, you're amazing, you saved us. I think he's a hero, yeah. Yeah, yeah. gets a phone call from Magic Johnson to say, oh, you're amazing, thanks for that. You used your last time out to call, (laughs) wasn't it? Thanks, Magic. (laughs) It's been a long time since, yeah. (laughs) And so eventually it comes out that he is indeed a fraud and they come up with this whole line of, oh, well, you know, you got lucky, I guess I pulled a Homer. Yes. And there's this scene at the end where Magic Johnson slips on a wet patch, the ball bounces off the referee's head and goes in, winning the game for the Lakers, and it flashes to him basically sitting in the crowd of all the Laker cheer girls going, hey, I guess I pulled a Homer. Yeah, yep. And then they go to a definition in the dictionary, Homer, noun, American bonehead, pull a Homer to succeed despite idiocy. So unfortunately, in Australian folklore for Stephen Bradbury, he will kind of be similarly linked. 
And indeed, when I kind of post this as an episode idea, we both, like you mentioned the Simpsons thing, and I'm like, oh, it's so funny you say that because I was going to write an intro in a similar vein. But the idiocy bit is the bit I want to kind of, of course, yes. circle it around here. So obviously, Stephen Bradbury is no idiot at all, and that's where the similarities end. But it was just interesting that that kind of... And yeah. we'll come back to definitions too, because there is such a thing as pulling a Bradbury. Yeah, and you, you would replace the word idiocy with fortune or luck potentially. But we'll, yeah, as you say, we'll kind of go into that a little bit more. Indeed. So many don't actually know the full story, and including myself before I did research for this. We will see that it is a story of luck, but it's actually much more than that. It's a story of grit and determination, a story of near tragedy and redemption. It's a story of strong irony, and ultimately, possibly even a story of fate. So Steve grew up in Lemire in Western Sydney, and you could say he was kind of destined to be a speed skater. He first wore a pair of skates at age three and had his first pair of speed skates at age eight. His dad was very good. His brother Warren also nearly made the Olympic team. So speed skating was in his blood. He started racing in under 10s and moved to Brizzy at age 14 because of his dad's work. And even at that age, he was still ranked really high, even amongst the men. And for our listeners in places like Venezuela or Colombia or Disputed Zone, Brizzy is Brisbane. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case there's any confusion there. (laughs) So there's kind of almost this myth that he was so lucky and I don't know, there's this thought that he was just happy to be there and hadn't had this great career prior to that gold medal, but it's actually really different. So he was a reserve in the national team at age 15 and that gave him the impetus to want to actually medal at the Olympics. At the World Championships in Sydney in 1991, he competed as a 17-year-old and he was the fourth member of the Aussie men's relay team that actually won. Now they'd been lapped the year before by the world champion Dutch team and came back with a vengeance to get a gold. The relay team went in as favourites for gold in 1992 as well in France, but unfortunately one of the Aussies crashed in the semi and they didn't make it to the final. Now what we've actually found out in the course of our research for this episode is that falling over and crashes is actually far more common than people think. So he did this great, and Richard Feidler, like I grew up watching him on the Doug Anthony All-Stars. I don't know if ever you watched Das Capital or any of those sort of, you weren't an ABC kid. No. <laughs> but Richard Feidler, he's a great interviewer. And he did an interview with Stephen in August of 2021. And I'll, I'll use a few quotes from that today. But he actually talked about crashes. So Steve said, crashes are very common, especially once you get towards the final rounds of the event and skaters become incredibly even. Usually it's the first two that move through the next round of competition. So if you're in the quarterfinals and you're running third on the last lap, there's no point finishing third. You may as well go for a suicide pass and try and make it through to second to get through to the next round, which obviously creates carnage to go with it. Probably on average, most skaters will be crashing in training once every two or three weeks. And that's when you're not pushing yourself at 100%, trying to get past the other skaters when your legs are tired and in the final lap of a race, trying to get through to the next round. So in racing, crashes are far more common than in training. So that's kind of a myth dispelled already for many people that don't know much about speed skating. He was also at Lillehammer in 1994 and the relay team won bronze there. So individually, he was actually the favorite at that Olympics in the 1000 meter speed skating but bowed out when a Belgian skater fell down in front of him and took out his legs in the first round. Now, rules have actually been changed since then, and there was actually a bit of speculation that it was maybe a bit dodgy, but already there's this clear pattern that falling over is maybe not as rare as we kind of average fans or fair weather Winter Olympic fans thought. And I will just quickly take a second to pause and say, right, that 
relay team in Lillehammer actually was the first Winter Olympic medal of any kind for Australia. Yes, indeed. Yes. So they were an amazing team. And Stephen Bradbury did have a very, very nasty ponytail, <laughs> which he kept for the 98 games as well. <laughs> Not that the uh, frosted tips in 2002 were much better, but anyway. Now, there is more to this story, Shui, and we will get to that in a moment. But first, let's fast forward ahead to 2002 and let's look at the races themselves. Yeah, so it is kind of amazing when you look at this holistically and, and everyone obviously focuses so much on the crashing, but there is more to it. And it's not just a case of that amazingly huge crash in the gold medal race. If you go back now, obviously he won his heat fairly comfortably. The first round, you kind of expect that. But in the quarterfinals, he actually drew Apollo Anton Ono, who was the favorite in the event, future US Olympic Hall of Famer. So a phenomenal skater. And Mark Gagnon of Canada, who was actually the reigning world champion. So he had two very, very top quality skaters in his quarterfinal. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, only the top two get through. Bradbury finished third and it looked like it was all over. It did. But Gagnon was actually disqualified for obstructing another racer and Bradbury moved on to the semifinals. So there is a little bit of fortune there. Oh yeah, the luck begins there, definitely. That trend of luck, which will weave its way through from here. Absolutely. Then at that point, you move to the semifinals and Bradbury and coach Ann Zhang decided the best tactic for him. Now, keep in mind, he's a little bit older than a lot of these guys. He's, he knows that he's not as quick as a lot of them. He was actually the oldest in the entire field. He was. Even from the heats. Yeah. And, and actually, it's funny you say that because he mentions in several interviews that unlike swimming, it's all done really quick. So you have the heats, the quarters, the semis and the final, yes. all within like an hour and a half. Yeah, all in the same afternoon, yeah. And so he said that at that age and with, with his body the way it was, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but he said that by the time you get to the final, you're pretty knackered and in a little bit of a way, just happy to be there. Hmm. So they decided the best tactic for him would be to sit at the back of the pack and hope that his opponents crashed out while jockeying for position, kind of like what you just alluded to. Yep. And it worked perfectly. In the semi-final, defending champion Kim Dong-sung, the 1998 silver medalist Lee Jia-jun and Mathieu Turcotte all crashed out, giving him a second-place finish and a spot in the final. Now, I want to make it really clear at this point. It's not one of those, oh, yeah, I was purposely hanging back. It's not one of those. It was a clear tactic. His coach said, you can't win this. Your best way of maybe getting a bronze is hanging back and hoping a person or two falls over. And he's very candid about that. He's clear that it was his tactic and it was because he, he was. He was just happy to, to be there. He did not think he would medal. Yeah. And Turcotte did actually get through, I will point out as well, even though he did crash, he, he did make it through. So it was a star-studded final, Stewie. His fellow competitors had 15 gold medals between them. Mm. So Turcotte, who I just mentioned, winner of three world championship golds. Ono, winner of two world championship golds. Lee, winner of 10 world championship golds. And An Hyun Su, who actually won gold in the 1,000 and 1,500 metre events in Turin four years later. Indeed, so, yes. Incredibly star-studded lineup. Indeed. Bradbury, unsurprisingly, kept the exact same strategy, hoped for the best, hung around the back, sitting in fifth position, not even really trying to make a move. And coming into the final corner, he was 15 metres off the back of the pack. Yes. It's it's pretty blatant when you watch the footage. It is. Yeah. Then Lee went down. Yes. Then Ono went down. Oh, and how good is the name? Like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, it's gone down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then Sue went down. Yes. Then finally Turkot. Bradbury glided over the line in first place, not even mid-stride. He literally just... 
Oh, and just the image, like I said, it still gives me chills to this day with the arms outstretched and this look of incredulity in his face. Like just, oh, fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. And the other thing, I guess, that always sticks in my mind is seeing Ono and Turcotte just scrambling, like almost clambering across the, the sliding ice, across yeah trying yeah. to get trying to get up there's like a leg stuck out yeah, trying to get that yeah. second place and yeah uh, yeah they, they got the minor places between them but yeah it is a, an image as an australian fan that you will always remember that yeah as you say that incredulous look on his face it's such a, a great way of putting it of like how am i here how did, yes, this, yep. did this just happen and he, he was so classy so there's a couple of things here one he had to wait for a little while to make sure that it, they were going to uphold the results. Yes. And he said that had the crash occurred earlier, they would have reset. But because it was in the final lap and because it was so close to the end, it was going to have to be legit. So that worked in his favour. He intentionally decided not to do a lap of honour holding the Australian flag because he knew it was lucky. So he actually said in that conversations interview, if you'd asked me prior to the competition if I'd been in the final and I'd take a fifth place out of this event, I would have taken it. In the quarterfinal, I beat a guy named Mark Guignon. I hadn't beaten that prick for eight years. <laughs> and, and he does go on to say that he's not a prick. It's just, you know, it's, it's a bit, a bit of, in jest there. But I thought that was really classy. And the Salt Lake City crowd, and it, by the way, played in the home of the Utah Jazz yeah, yeah. in that stadium. But they were booing because they wanted the Yankee to win. So they were really pissed off. They were not happy. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a surprise, of yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. But I, I don't know. Booing, it's not a... Oh, that's a bit rough, I think. Maybe they were booing the competitor that fell. I don't know. But indeed, this is the ultimate outcome. Funnily enough, after all these years and after all this training, he gets his gold. But Stewie, the story is even crazier. Oh, do tell. He had two major, major injuries. Now, I actually forgot about this, but in researching it and listening to a lot of interviews and stuff, I vaguely remember him mentioning on, on Survivor now. See, I had no recollection of him even being on Survivor. I vaguely remember him mentioning it, but not in kind of great detail. But get this. So at the 1994 World Cup in Montreal, eight years before his gold medal in Salt Lake City, he crashed with two of the best skaters in the world and he landed on the back of Fred Blackburn's blade at 50 kilometres an hour, basically impaling his leg. He lost four litres of blood in a minute. Wow. To put it in perspective, his body at his height and size had about five and a half litres in his entire body. That's kind of like when we were talking he, about that that uh, ice hockey guy who had his... Blood Zamboni. Yeah, the blood Zamboni. Yeah, there, yeah. Where he basically had his neck cut. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he lost more than two-thirds of his blood in a minute. And he tells the story of him lying on the ice there with blood gushing everywhere, trying to keep himself awake because he knows that if he closes his eyes and loses consciousness, it, yeah. he's probably lost his life. So on the podcast Life Journey with Kelly Shan, he referred to it as the most defining minute of my life. Here's a quote from Conversations. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth it. It's amazing the amount of power that a human being, any human being, can draw upon when they're put into a life and death situation like that. If I could have drawn on that sort of power every day in my training, I never would have lost. I was able to draw on that sometimes if I was having a tough day in training, though, and the legs were just hurting. If it felt like it was all too hard, I try and think back to lying on the ice in Canada with three quarters of my blood spilled all around me and a bad day of training didn't seem quite so bad anymore. So he detailed his injuries in that interview. And I, I would encourage people to go, as I say, Richard Feidel is a fantastic interviewer, but he details his injuries. His ephemeral artery was missed by one millimeter. He said, had that been nicked, he would have bled out in 30 seconds and died on the ice. He spent nearly a month in hospital. 
He said he was never able to get all of the explosive power back in his leg, although it did get stronger, but that took a whole 18 months. Wow. So this is another interesting story again. Yes, he had some luck, but holy shit, he went through some stuff. Now, this isn't even the end of it. At Nagano in 1998, again, one of the favourites, maybe not the absolute favourite, but was definitely one of the people to beat. Unfortunately, he crashed out again. And he had this problem of never seeming to hit his peak at the big events, which is why I talked about irony at the beginning, because it's so funny that he wasn't at his peak performance. He was actually on the downhill when he won his gold. It's so funny how sport works sometimes. The downhill also being an event. (laughs) Yes, true. So... In the 18 months leading up to Salt Lake City, prior to the Olympics, he had a crash where he landed headfirst into the barrier and fractured his C4 and C5, or in layman's terms, he suffered a broken neck. Yeah, not good. So he needed a halo brace screwed into his head. Some doctors told them that he'd never skate again. And he said on conversations, he could tell that his mum clearly wanted him to quit. So not only has he had this near-death experience, He's also broken his bloody neck. A lot of athletes would have given up there. God, what were the odds of him even making the Olympics, let alone meddling and getting gold? Exactly. And there's these images of him with this brace. Like he could barely, it's just astonishing. It is. So going back to the Life Journey podcast I listened to, he talks about the broken neck and being told never to skate again. And they asked him about his injuries and and was it hard getting back on the ice? So he said, I quote, in my head, I had no choice. I have one more chance at the Olympics, a fourth one. 16 months of rehab out of 14 years. In my head, that wasn't a very long time. So to finish there, when I had one more shot at the big stage, the Olympics, where the whole world finally decides to have a look at what a speed skater from Brisbane is doing. If I don't have that one last shot, I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my life. It's easy to stop something if you haven't been doing it for that long and haven't invested that much, but there's not much to lose. For me, I'd done three Olympics. I hadn't done my best in any of them been training my guts out for 12 years. To not do the last 16 months, not an option. When I got my leg cut open, I was only 21. I was fearless. 26, when I broke my neck, that was a different conundrum. And I had a little bit of fear in the system. It came down to what I said before, being the unfinished business. I kind of weighed it all up as well. The chances of me crashing my car on the way to training at the ice rink and dying in a car crash are probably actually greater than going headfirst into that barrier again and becoming a paraplegic. So let's look at it realistically, which is something I've always been pretty good at. You have to be prepared to take a risk in life. If you're not prepared to put yourself out there, then you don't find out where the really good stuff is. It's almost a shame that more people can't be that introspective and that willing to, I guess, have a crack. It's very easy sometimes when you do have those major injuries to just put the cue in the rack and say, right, I'm done. No one could be blamed for that, could they? I mean, I did it. Yeah. I had a concussion. Well, that's fair enough. I had a concussion and buddy hung my boots up that night. Well, you want to protect your livelihood, don't you? And your long-term health. So, sure, you've had an opportunity to maybe think of some other similar examples? Yeah, I've come up with four in particular, and they kind of range from not so serious, not so significant at the start, kind of right up towards life and death and the way that potentially some things like this can actually change entire franchises and entire people's lives of course the history yeah yep so the first one a real easy one just to kind of work our way into this and you've got to we've got to work basketball in somehow don't you we wouldn't be the sport blokes without basketball i've done it twice (laughs) (laughs) so the first one goes back to january 9th of 1982 it's a regular season game between the atlanta hawks and the milwaukee bucks this had been a really close game throughout john drew hit two free throws for the hawks to tie the game with 26 seconds left 
And then Sydney Moncrief missed a jump shot with two seconds left, rebounded by Trey Rollins, who called a timeout. Now, the Hawks had the ball at halfway, and Tom McMillan threw a pass towards the ring, which is a pretty decent strategy. Try and get that tip in. Yep. Milwaukee's Harvey Catchings inadvertently tipped the ball into his own basket to give the Hawks a 90 to 88 victory. Mm. Whoops. Yes, indeed. In the scheme of things, though, the Bucks still finished the season 55 and 27. They were the number two seed in the East. So the impact to the team for a little bit of a whoopsie was kind of minor, maybe a little bit embarrassing, but certainly not a huge deal at the end of the day. But it was, I do remember seeing that, God, way back when it was on an old video. Oh, God, I can't even think what it was. I think it was like fabulous endings and oh, right. something like that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Oh, geez, you'd hate to be catching so in that situation. You would. You would. You'd rather be catching the ball than tipping it in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. Harvey Catchings, more like hardly catching. Hey. There we go. There we go. <laughs> now, the second one's a little bit more serious. So this is the Immaculate Reception game. So the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Oakland Raiders in a 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff game. One of the... We talk about famous images. This is a very famous image in US sport. Yeah. It is. So the Steelers trailed the Raiders 7-6, to six, had a 4th and 10 on their own 40-yard line with 22 seconds left in the game. No timeouts. Pretty dire. Mm. Steelers coach Chuck Noll called a pass play with the intention of throwing to receiver Barry Pearson, who was actually playing in his first NFL game. This is so random that I forget that detail. First game in a divisional playoff. It, well, it happens more often than you think. Yeah, injuries. It's a tough sport. Well, it would happen more often because I would think it would happen never. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Although it's like crashes, isn't it? Yeah. In speed skating. Well, it's kind of like Marlon Pickett making his AFL debut in the grand final for Richmond. Not only that, he was odds on Norm Smith until the last quarter, basically, yeah. And so Steelers quarterback Terry Bradshaw, under a ton of pressure, threw the ball towards the Raiders' 35-yard line, actually aiming for halfback John Frenchie Fukua. Raiders' safety Jack Tatum collided with Fukua just as the ball arrived. He was actually knocked to the ground and the ball went sailing back a few yards. And Steelers fullback, Franco Harris. Oh, time almost stops as the ball's in the air. It's, it does. It's crazy, it man. It really does, It's actually. such great footage, yeah. I think Harris is the only one who seems to be moving. Yeah, yeah. At that stage. So he'd made his way downfield. He was initially blocking on the play. Just in case Bradshaw needed another eligible receiver, he kind of made his way down there. And the ball landed in Harris's hands while everyone else kind of assumed the ball would hit the ground. Yep, for an incompletion. And he outran the Raiders defenders all the way in for the touchdown, the ensuing point after gave the Steelers a 13-7 lead, which ended up being the final score. Yep. It's insane. So I actually read from a website called For The Win. They outlined at least seven very different factors had to all coalesce in perfect harmony for the immaculate reception to become the immaculate reception rather than the forgettable incompletion. Exactly. And this is why we talk about fate at the top too, because that's another example of where it almost feels fateful. So you've got the speed of Bradshaw's throw. You've got the accuracy of the throw. You've got where the ball hit the helmet. You've got the angle at which the ball ricocheted off the helmet. The exit velocity off the helmet. There's so much chaos going on here. The rotation of the ball and Franco Harris happening to be standing in the exact right place. Right time, right spot. Yep. If he's half a yard further back, the ball hits the ground. Yep. If he's half a yard further forward, it might ricochet off him and end up being incomplete. Yep. So obviously, this is an absolutely crazy circumstance. Unfortunately for the Steelers, though, they made it through but lost 21-17 to the eventual champion Miami Dolphins, who were, for the season... Undefeated. 17-0. and The only perfect season in NFL history. Yep, yep. And don't they always remind everyone about it? Oh, so. they do. <laughs> 
Now, the third one is where it starts getting a little bit more serious. And when I say a little bit more serious, I mean a lot more serious. So we're going back to the 1994 FIFA World Cup, America versus Colombia, and the unfortunate case of Andres Escobar. So we spoke a little while back in one of the episodes about the unfortunate case of New Zealand defender Michaela Moore, who scored the first three goals for the USA in a She Believes Cup match. All own goals, unfortunately, no. as part of a 5 nothing loss to the USA. But the whole case of Escobar is really tragic, and it goes back to the group stages. So Colombia were in Group A. They were expected to not just get through, but compete for the entire tournament. They were a very, very good side back then. In the second of the three games in the group stage, Colombia actually, though, needed a result because they'd lost their first game 3-1 to Romania, who were relative minnows at the time. Mm. But in the 35th minute of this game against the USA, Escobar actually turned a dangerous cross into his own net. Mm. And Colombia would go on to lose the match 2-1 and be eliminated from contention. Ten days later, Escobar, who was the captain of the national side, was shot six times in the car park of a nightclub in his home city of Medellin or Medellin, depending on how you pronounce it, if you're Latino or not. We obviously butcher everything being Aussies. Yeah, I only know that because I watch Narcos. There, There you go. Yeah. And unfortunately, it has been speculated that his assassination was because of that own goal. Yeah, it's very tragic. So obviously the USA kind of get through on the back of that bit of fortune, I guess. Mm, mm. And it's basically cost someone his life. Yep, yep. Which is just is crazy. But the big one I wanted to talk about, and again, it is basketball. So anyone who doesn't like basketball, if you've got to this point in our journey, I, <laughs> I don't know how. So I'm I'm hoping that most people will be on board with this. Well, I, I guess the direction we're heading now is even if you don't like all the sports we talk about, we're talking about interesting stories and narratives and yeah. they're still fascinating. Mm. Now, this is a multi-tiered version of a Bradbury and it involves the Portland Trailblazers and not one, not two, not three, but four other teams. All right. The Buffalo Braves, the Boston Celtics, the Seattle Supersonics, and the Chicago Bulls. Okay. Now, possibly the biggest example, as I mentioned, is basically the repercussions that then led to the Chicago Bulls picking up Michael Jordan in the draft. Not because their strategy was bad going in, not because they were incapable of being anything good, but they were in a lottery. They had the third pick. They were sitting behind two other teams. They kind of knew who they wanted, but, you know, there's two other teams that are choosing in front of you. The likelihood of getting Jordan, pretty slim. But all of a sudden, they went to being on top of the world because of, well, I guess a team's inability to stay on their feet. Yeah, indeed. But to understand the significance of this, we have to look at three other instances where the Portland Trailblazers royally screwed up in the draft. Two before 1984 and one after. Now, the first one goes all the way back to 1972 which is the year that they selected LaRue Martin with the number one draft pick, who, in my opinion, is probably top three busts of all time. (laughs) Now, they've selected him with the number one pick. He actually ended up playing a grand total of 271 games over just four seasons in the league. And for the non-basketball initiated, 271 sounds like a lot. But in an 82-game season, it's not a lot. It's not great. Yeah. He averaged a whopping 5.3 points a game and 4.6 rebounds a game over his career, shot 41% from the field, which is ghastly for a centre. It is. The very next pick in the draft was Bob McAdoo. One of the great centres of all time. Averaged 22 points and nine and a half rebounds a game over his entire career, averaged over 30 points a game in his second, third and fourth seasons in the league. In actual fact, he had more points in his first season than Martin had in his entire career. Whoops. So big mistake. What's even crazier is that in the same draft, Julius Irving was actually drafted number 12 by the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh. 
Okay. And that's something you didn't know. I probably did, but forgot. Yeah. Oh, I, I wasn't aware of this. Yeah. And it's probably it, in the book of basketball, I suggest. It might have been. Yeah, actually, yeah I reckon true. I've forgotten, yeah. But had it not been for a ruling by US District Judge Edward Nea that Irving had to continue playing with the Virginia Squires in the ABA, we would have seen a Milwaukee Bucks team of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robertson, Julius Irving, Bobby Dandridge, and Curtis wow. Perry. Wow, that's nuts. In that world, Kareem maybe never goes to Los Angeles. Exactly. And the Bucks are a dynasty. Yeah. Nuts. They don't just win one. Yeah, wow. They could win four or five. Wow. It's insane. That is insane. Now, it might be worth mentioning Oscar Robertson was getting on in years, so he maybe would have only had a couple more seasons in him. But even then, Abdul-Jabbar, Irving and Dandridge, on that, that's a... Oh, well, they don't need Robinson to do much in a squad. That is, Wow, yeah. It's crazy. Fast forward six years to the 1978 NBA draft, and this is the year that the Portland Trail Blazers used their number one pick in the draft to select Michael Thompson over Larry Bird. Mm. So, again, they chose a talented big man, and I say talented, not that LaRue Martin was talented, but <laughs> we'll say talented... Well, talented in college. People are picked number one for a reason. Yeah, we'll they say, have to have some level of talent. I'm also saying talented in, I, I guess, in preparation for the, the next two. But Thompson was a solid player. Oh, yeah, good career. Yeah. His third season, he averaged nearly 21 and 12. He was, yeah, a very handy player. But Larry Bird was picked at number six and went on to be a three-time MVP, three-time champion, 12-time All-Star, and probably one of the 10 best players in NBA history. And funnily enough, just very recently at time of recording, they've named the Eastern Conference MVP after him. I think that was a really nice touch. It was, yeah, with, especially with the duality with Magic Johnson in the Western Conference. Yeah, yeah really, yeah. really cool. So the only positive for Portland with this one is that it wasn't just them who passed over Larry Bird. So there were another four teams. So he got all the way down to six. So another four teams missed on him. Most incredibly was that one of those teams was the Indiana Pacers which is basically home state. his home state. Yeah, that is interesting. It's I think I had a look. It's like an hour or two up the road to Indianapolis from French Lick where Larry Bird was yeah, born. Yeah, wow, well, yeah. So they took Rick Roby over Larry Bird, and it gets worse for the Pacers. Roby played just 43 games for Indiana before he was traded to, of all of the teams in the NBA, the Celtics <laughs> for Billy Knight. But before the 83-84 season, the Celtics traded Roby to Phoenix for Dennis Johnson. Oh, wow who was a critical part of their 84 and 86 championship teams. He sure was. Royal fuck-up. Yes. Oh, the Celtics, I mean, wow. Yeah, very lucky. Their front office has done a lot of good things over the years. They have. Now, the one after is one that a lot of people will know about. It is the 2007 draft taking Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. In 2007, they, they still needed another big, but... Damn, how do you not pick... I watched a lot of college that year, and I was dumbfounded that Kevin Durant did not go number one. He was a quadruple double threat in college. Mm. He was incredible. I, to this day, I'm still amazed. It, it, and given their history. Yes. Oh. Yeah, fool me three times. Oh. Shame. You just, you can't. Sam Bowie, short memory. Well, we'll get to him in just a second. Oh, man. So Odin played a total of 105 games and lost more full seasons with knee injuries than seasons he played any games in. Four full seasons lost, three seasons partially played. Mm. The second pick, as we said, was Durant, a guy who currently averages more than 27 and 7 for his entire career. His scoring average sits fourth all time behind only Michael Jordan, Will Chamberlain, and Elgin Baylor. Durant had nearly doubled the amount of points in his first season that Odin had in his entire career. That's not a surprise at all. It's just ridiculous that you would not see this happening again. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But the big one, obviously, is the one that everyone talks about. 1984 NBA draft, 
choosing Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. It's happened so many times. The Blazers have a chance to choose this generational talent and instead they pick a center who gets so frequently injured. It's almost a joke. And so Portland had the chance to select Jordan. We know this. Instead, they went for a center. They took Clyde Drexler the year before. They had Jim Paxson and Kiki Vandeweghe on the wing. You can see the logic. They didn't feel like they needed a shooting guard. In fact, I didn't know this. Drexler only actually started 43 of the 80 games he played in 1984. So even after drafting Sam Bowie, Drexler was on the bench quite a lot. Yeah, okay. But the thing I don't understand about this is that their center stocks had actually been pretty decent the previous season. They had Michael Thompson still. They had Wayne Cooper, who was always a pretty decent backup. Cooper then bailed to Denver, and then they drafted Bowie. So if they'd kept Cooper, they could have actually avoided all of this. So Bowie already kind of had a history of injury from his college days. He had a stress fracture in his left tibia, which was discovered after the 80-81 college season. He was in a cast for 44 weeks, nearly an entire year, missed two full college seasons before finishing the 83-84 season with a pretty decent run to the final four. He played 76 games in his rookie season. Obviously then the shit hit the fan. Mm. Halfway through the next season, the Blazers are playing in Milwaukee and Bowie and Jerome Kersey got tangled going out for a rebound. Bowie landed really badly and broke his left tibia. The next season, in the fifth game of the season, Bowie went up for a hook shot, broke his right tibia. Oh, man. The next season, he suffered a hairline fracture in his right tibia during warm-ups, not even during a game, during a warm-up. Well, you already had dodgy tibia. Is it any wonder? Hmm. But I actually remember hearing an interview where one of his former teammates actually had him come up to him and say, I think it's happened again. Mm. Like he landed and just felt it go. Ugh. He missed all of that season and all but 20 games of the 88-89 season as well. And unlike Bradbury, his story doesn't end in... Gold. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it kind of does. He gets to play for the Lakers, so he gets that gold jersey. Yeah, well, time. that's about as good as yeah. it gets. So in all, he played out of a possible 410 games in five seasons, just 139. Meanwhile, Michael Jordan leads the Bulls to six championships becomes the greatest player in the history of the game. May have heard of him. And the Bulls were basically just there after Portland fell down and took Bowie. Yep. So it's... The Bulls are Bradbury in this in this scenario. They, they really are. They're just <laughs> sitting there like, oh my God, I, I cannot believe this. One of my favourite stories to come out of this draft, though, is that Portland were that desperate for a centre. They'd actually offered Houston, Clyde Drexler, and the number two pick for Ralph Sampson. Yeah, we've talked about this before. We have. Yeah. So Houston could have drafted Elijah one and then traded Ralph Sampson for Drexler and Jordan, who they could have taken with the second pick, and had all three of them play in Houston for 10 years and probably win like 600 championships along the way. Mm. It's nuts. Sampson played four more pretty solid seasons for Houston. Then his knees gave out and he was traded for Sleepy Floyd and Joe Barry Carroll, who was probably like 85 at the time. <laughs> he had a good career. He, yeah. he did, but he yeah. was well and truly on the way out. Houston did win two titles, and ironically, it's probably because Jordan was not playing at the time. So it's it's just an insane story that a team can fall over that badly on so many different draft occasions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and they haven't won since. Yeah, like you almost don't trust Portland with a number one draft. No, definitely not. It's insane. Definitely not. But let's circle back to... Bradbury and the world of speed skating. And let's circle back to definitions. So we've talked about that pulling a Homer one, which we've now decided is not totally applicable here for obvious reasons. But in 2014, the Macquarie Dictionary actually defined Bradbury and to do a Bradbury. 
So, and I quote, colloquialism, to achieve a surprising victory or success due to good luck rather than ability. Now, even then, in some ways, I'm not even convinced that that's entirely true. It's not. Because as we've talked about, he was the favourite back in the day. He competed in a lot. He'd won gold medal in relays. He'd won other medals in relays and this sort of thing too. He was actually a very good speed skater. And can I just say, it is incredibly rare that somebody makes an Olympic team without having an incredibly high level of skill. There are the cases of people like Eric the Eel. Uh, yeah, so that occurred to me too. Who yeah. makes a swimming team because he basically was the only person who showed up. But... It's just, it's so rare that you would see that sort of case where someone just turns up. Most people have to qualify through skill and through hard work and dedication like Bradbury did. And I think all wins will involve some level of luck. It might only be 1% rather than 99% in this case. Well, even 99 is probably a stretch, but luck is always involved in some way, shape or form. Now, what's interesting is you could probably forgive him for maybe not liking this definition, but he's actually really embraced it. So on the Sport and Life podcast with Sam Kekovich and Leon Wigard, he actually said, and I quote, I get the comical part and side of how I got the gold. Probably the luckiest individual gold medalist in sporting history, but it doesn't change the fact that I trained my guts out for 14 years and put myself in that position. And I reckon that's a pretty good message that parents can relate to their kids. And indeed they can. So he's done a lot of really interesting things since this Olympic achievement. He's actually been a motivational speaker. Now, he doesn't actually like that term. He thinks it's too Americanized. So he refers to it as being a real life speaker. So he's not fabricated. And <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. But by golly, he has lived a real life, hasn't he? So there's all sorts of cool things. They're actually making a movie about him. One of the blokes from Netflix's The Dirt is going to play him. And he's actually been in training in speed skating. So he's actually learned how to speed skate. Oh, that's cool. And the director, I should have, I wish I'd noted down the name, but the director's done some good stuff too. So I'm actually really looking forward to it. Okay. He also wrote an autobiography. Yeah, Last Man Standing. Yes, great title, isn't it? It's it, perfect. Yeah, it is It is great that he was willing to embrace this. And I just, I do just quickly want to go back a second to something that you mentioned there. No matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone does to him, you cannot take away the fact that he is an Olympic gold medalist. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. And he might have got some luck in that final, but geez, he earned it. He earned it. But he's, yeah, he's still, no matter what happens, he has still achieved something that the very, very vast majority of humanity will never achieve. Yep. And he was the first ever gold medalist individual at the Winter Olympics for Australia. Australia yeah, there's only that's an incredible well, achievement. Well, there's only six people that can Ever. say yeah. can say that they've got a gold medal at the Winter Olympics for Australia, and he is one of them. And that will never be taken away, no matter what his legacy dictates. Still a champion. Absolutely. Now, I think Last Man Standing would have been a great title for the movie, but apparently, I think they're just calling it Bradbury. Even doing a Bradbury due to the definition in the dictionary would have been a better title, I thought. Yeah. But I, I still really look forward to seeing it. I wonder if there is a film called Last Man Standing already. Oh, maybe that's true. I've gone to the third umpire. There's probably a pretty good reason. There was that terrible sitcom with Tim Allen called Last, <laughs> maybe it's that called Last Man Standing. So they've, they've probably decided that they didn't want to have anything to do with that and uh, probably not a bad decision at all. Now, it's not uncommon for there to be multiple movies with the same title, of course. Now, Last Man Standing. There is actually a 1996 film with Bruce Willis oh, in it. I haven't called, seen that one. Called Last Man Standing as well. So there you oh, go. Oh, Christopher Walken. Might have yeah. to look at that one. There you go. And Bruce Dern. Now, Stewie, I want to finish on this note. He seems like a really interesting guy, a really nice down-to-earth guy, 
very self-aware of his achievements, but also his ills and downfalls. And he's the sort of bloke you'd love to have a beer with. You would. Now, unfortunately, obviously, in my little home office here in Perth, that's not going to happen today. But did you know that he actually has a brewery that he co-owns with a couple of mates called Last Man Standing? There you go. So if I can't have a beer with him, I'll have one of his beers. Oh, oh, jeez. <laughs> it's not a bad drop. I like lager. Sorry, I, I just fell over. <laughs> I fell over being around that bit. No, honestly, um, that is that is sensational. <laughs> so our tip of the hat to Stephen Bradbury. What a man. What a story. Looking forward to that movie. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. Time for final thoughts. Well, I think the story of Stephen Bradbury really provides a perfect lesson for life. Things are going to get really hard sometimes, but sometimes just being able to stay on your feet and not let the world get you down can lead to success. Absolutely. Sometimes you need a bit of luck in your life, but you often make your own luck. Grit and determination, pretty important. Yeah, and I think it's important that we acknowledge him as the true champion that he really is. Amen to that. To Stephen Bradbury, a tip of the hat. I'm going to enjoy this lager just quietly. Might have to have a few more. There we go. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.